I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program is Professor Lisa Randall talking about how physics and scientific thinking illuminate the modern world. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Although recent advances in physics may seem remote in their connection to our modern lives, the notion of scale is critical to understanding the world around us. How do physics and scientific thinking illuminate the universe and the modern world? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Lisa Randall. Professor Randall is the Frank J. Bard Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University, where she studies theoretical physics and cosmology. Author of numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, including Warped Passages, her latest release, Knocking on Heaven's Door, How Physics and Scientific Thinking Illuminate the Modern World, explores this issue for a general audience. And Professor Randall, we're very uh, grateful to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and uh, this, I would have to say, Knocking on Heaven's Door, is really a fascinating book. Um, I'm curious, why did you decide to write the uh, book itself? Well, you know, it's been several years since I wrote my first book, War Passages, and um, and so I did want to do something different if I was going to write a book. And I guess, um, you know, it's sort of a combination of two things. I mean, one is that it is now a very exciting time for physics, and that there really are experiments we've been waiting for decades for turning online. So we have the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. We have exciting dark matter experiments and other such things. But the other reason was, um, I guess, as a response to my first book, I just heard a lot about pe- what people thought when they thought about science. And um, even people who were very interested would have some, there's sometimes some basic misunderstandings of what was going on. And I thought it was important to um, address those. And I also just think scientific thinking is so useful in so many ways, and certainly, you know, in debates we hear today. So I thought it would just be nice to sort of integrate that with a discussion of the actual physics that is is of interest to me. Talk about ideas such as scale or uncertainty, the role of uncertainty. Talk about risk um, at some level. It was just because of what was going on in the world around us. Um, the role of creativity. Just a lot of things people don't always address in these kind of popular science books. And I thought that would be kind of more interesting to me to sort of um, try to share those aspects too. What it's like in, in in reality to be doing science. We hear this very clean picture of scientific thinking and how it works. And it's nice to also think about how ideas advance on the old ones. Well, the book does tackle those uh, issues that really aren't often covered in popularized science books. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's just easier to just sort of focus on the new stuff even if we don't necessarily know what's going on yet. Um, but I think that these are sort of deep issues. You know, it's it's a challenge to integrate all of these things together. Um, it's not it's not an easy thing. So I think one of the reasons is just it's hard. 
And another is that that's not necessarily what everyone cares about who's writing a physics book. It was something I cared deeply about, trying to share these ideas. Um, so I think those are a couple of the reasons. I mean, there's also just the fact that a lot of people do think they know some of this already. And even if you have some new insights, they might not have the patience to do whereas people who are unfamiliar would be more appreciative of that, but maybe less appreciative of the actual physics. So I think any book where you try to be broad and expand beyond a single, a single audience, a single reader, is always challenging. And um, it was a challenge I wanted to take on, but I'm not sure everyone does. Well, you did mention that certainly got a lot of interest from your first book, and certainly now this uh, second book, which is looking at some of these issues. What would you say is the one or two questions you get asked most often about particle physics or cosmology in general? Oh, that's a good question. Lately, I get asked most often what's going on with those neutrinos uh, that are just supposed to be traveling faster than the speed of light. That's probably the most popular question. Um, I don't know that there's any one question. There's probably a dozen questions that I get asked. Um, some people are trying to understand the extra-dimensional ideas. Some people are interested in, you know, what are the big goals? What are we after? Um, but a lot of the time, there's sort of just specifics in terms of understanding what various things mean. Well, so what about those neutrinos? What do you think? Probably not. And even the people that did the experiment don't think that was right. I mean, what they were doing was was a very reasonable thing to say, look, we're measuring this, we're doing this measurement as well as we can. It's a very precise and accurate measurement. And we're trying to know what we could have done wrong or can other people reproduce it. What we do learn, though, from the way it was reported was, I mean, it made me feel like what I was trying to say was worthwhile because a lot of it was presented in terms of overturning Einstein's theory. Even if it were right, it doesn't overturn Einstein's theory. It just shows that it's not a theory that's infinitely precise there would be something that underlies it. The same way uh, Newton's laws aren't wrong, but they eventually fail at very either short distance or high speeds. And so that's the way science builds on itself, and I think that was a big misrepresentation of what the results would have meant. There are a lot of science philosophers that I'll speak of it as rather the constant search for truth rather than dogma. There's sort of this constant uh, turnover of well, ideas. Think, again, that's what I want to address, so dogma versus science. I mean, science says very precise things. It says what has been established over a given range of parameters to a given level of precision. It's not necessarily saying it is the ultimate um, underlying theory. It's saying that it's a theory that works at particular scales and usually works very well. doesn't mean there's nothing else to be found. And, of course, that's what makes science interesting. If it was all found, it would be boring. Well, do you think the ultimate objective truth can be discovered through science? I don't know what the ultimate objective truth means. I mean, I really do think very much in terms of sort of effective theory, the truth that we can have access to at any given time. I, I, I mean, we can say how things work on the scales that we're familiar with. We can say how things work at scales that we can probe with technology. And I don't know what the ultimate underlying truth means. Um, so the book covers both particle physics and as well as cosmology, two very different endeavors, but uh, one you try and sort of tie together. How, what, are, what are sort of the main issues in both aspects of physics going on right now that are very exciting? Well, like I said earlier, the Large Hadron Collider is a very exciting machine. It collides together protons at energies higher than any we've ever studied, at rates bigger than we've ever studied before. So it's really poised to tell us deep underlying truths about the nature of matter and even possibly space and time. Whereas cosmology experiments are poised to tell us what's out there. What are these invisible um, substances, dark matter and dark energy? Why do they have the energy densities that they do? We have some chance of learning particularly about dark matter. 
in the next few years. And you said that particle physics and cosmology are very different subjects, and indeed they can be, but there are actually deep intellectual overlaps between the two. After all, there, if there's a single set of laws of physics, they would apply to both. And so one of the interesting things is to see what we can learn about cosmology from understanding particle physics and also the methods of particle physics, and also what kind of constraints on particles we have from cosmology. So there's really a, a, have been many deep overlaps over time. Isn't one of the uh, main issues, of course, also a quantum theory of gravity? It's one of the main issues, and that's one of the reasons I talk about scale, because that's not something we address at the Large Hadron Collider. That those questions become the question of quantum gravity becomes relevant. That's 16 orders of magnitude smaller distances than what we can study at the Large Hadron Collider. It's well beyond experimental reach. So it's a theoretical puzzle. How do you combine together quantum mechanics and gravity? in a regime where you um, seem to need both of them. You can't ignore one or the other. And that becomes the puzzle. Well, perhaps the more interesting issue is that of the Higgs boson. Well, certainly at this point, it's extremely interesting because we really might find out about the Higgs boson even this year. It's a really, really interesting thing. We're um, really studying it this very year. And already there are quite significant constraints. So the Higgs boson has to do with understanding the mechanism by which particles acquire mass. And it seems that um, there is something called the Higgs mechanism having to do with some sort of property of the vacuum, some state with no particles in it. But what tests the Higgs mechanism is to find some experimental evidence. And that could be something in the form of the Higgs boson. Now, the interesting thing is we actually know a lot about the Higgs boson because it's associated with particles acquiring their mass. So a Higgs boson interacts the most with the heaviest particles, the least with the lightest particles, which means we know a lot about how it would be produced and decay. We don't know its mass. Um, we don't know if it really is just a single Higgs boson, and that's why we're doing experiments to find out the answers to those questions. Again, the Large Hadron Collider should be able to see it at the energies it's looking at. That is correct, if it is the simple Higgs boson. If it's a more complicated Higgs vector, we're not guaranteed, and that's one of the things we want to find out. Well, certainly everyone here is a bit disappointed that Fermilab wasn't able to find it, but... <laughs> well, I, I personally was very disappointed that they shut down the Tevatron when they did. I mean, I actually organized, uh, along with a couple of others, a letter-writing campaign among leading theorists, theoretical particle physicists like myself, um, all of whom wanted to see the Tevatron keep running until we found the Higgs. Do you think there was any advantage for keeping it running in a way? That's a big advantage. Mm -hmm. But also, there are other things that it was getting hints about in terms of charge parity violation. There were, there were some interesting results. It's just, it was a very good machine that was running well. The Large Hadron Collider will, will really dominate. It will have higher energy, higher what we call luminosity. But for a couple of years, it could have made a good contribution. It would have been nice. So again, the idea of scientific research, scientific thinking can change the world. How is it that this sort of idea can then be applied really in our modern life? Well, think about any question that you think is important today and ask, can we really evaluate how to proceed without understanding how to look at other look at data to see what has happened in similar circumstances, understand the uncertainty in our predictions, try to make predictions, try to understand the risks involved. I mean, all of these things are essential to the scientific method and to, and to the way we approach science. So just think about whatever, whatever you think are the big questions in the world today. And of course, there's many political considerations that enter, et cetera. But a lot of issues do have to do with uh, science or scientific ideas. 
So it's really important to know how to how to interpret these when they're discussed and to be able to discuss them in a sensible manner. Well, almost certainly um, funding for science is contingent upon the public support of science. Do you think that um, scientific literate public in general is good for the continued progress of science in, in this country? I think that's a big part. I mean, I think they all go together. Where you have good science, you have usually a better educated public. We have a better educated public. We have a better economy, a thriving economy. I mean, those things all seem to go together. If you just look around where you don't have science, you're usually missing a lot of other things, too. So, again, much has been made of the somewhat failings of of, uh, the education system in the the states for educating those in science. Well, this isn't what I do. I mean, I don't do elementary education. I'm a university professor, and I'm doing research, and it's a very different sort of thing. So I I think there are people who have thought about these issues quite a lot. I do think that, again, having an appreciation of science and its importance is critical. I think that's one of the reasons to write popular books and speak to general audiences, to let people know what's going on, and to also let them know that it's not just some foreign entity, that it really does relate to the world, and it's something that can be accessible to them if they put in the time and effort to try to learn about it. So I, I you know, I think it, it's often presented, or it's thought to be alienating, and I think that, that we have to get beyond that, to think that we all have this common endeavor that's part of what makes us great. Well, certainly in, in the States anyway, there's a competing ideas from religion, which oftentimes clash. I mean, how is it that science can often compete with more emotional ideas that religion provides? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's emotional ideas. And we've got some real concrete problems. Would you want people who are being emotional to be just thinking about these big issues about the economy? Or would you want people that really can think about it rationally? And by rationally, I don't mean to, you know, necessarily to play games with the fiscal uh, system. I mean, really think about the big questions. You know, one of the things scientists know how to do is ask questions and think about what what are the factors we need to take into account, what are the relevant variables, and that's really important. And so, I mean, I I would like to believe that the people who are making these decisions are are making them on, on the basis of good criteria. Been before the House of Representatives, is it your impression that uh, most of the members of of government take science seriously? I mean, they take a lot of things seriously, and they have political considerations, etc. I mean, I wrote a, a commentary for Time magazine, and you know, pointing out that politicians are more comfortable talking about God and religion than they are about facts and science and numbers. Um, these are the people running our country. Is that a good thing? So, technology is certainly sort of all-encompassing these days, but now more and more uh, technological gadgets become more of a black box. Do you think it's creating a bit more of a mystique around science when you have these gadgets that are not very you know, understood? They can go both ways. I mean, one way to think of it is that you've made all these black boxes. Another is that we have tools that we can really focus our energy and attention on important issues, and I think it's up to us. As this is, I mean, look, any kind of tools you can use any different way, any number of different ways. I mean. If we want to, we can use an iPhone to do um, to get information that's real information, or we can use it, you know, to just Facebook our friends and and maybe sometimes we'll get information from them, but maybe we're just goofing off. So it's a, you know that's it's not these are tools, and so we sort of have a choice how we use them. I mean, I personally benefit from the fact that on my computer I don't have to do some of the um, you know I don't even have to go to a library. I can look things up sometimes. That that saves me time. Um, you know, there are calculations we can do now in a day that, you know, would have taken years before. So there's obviously lots of advances, and those help us, but it's up to us not to be too caught up. I mean, it's also up to us as a society. I mean, a lot of the easy wins can be just sort of gadgets as opposed to deeply forward-looking advances.
How would you hope, then, that the public or readers of your book will change their way of thinking about the world? Well, first of all, I think they would value the scientific thinking. And so when they hear some piece of data or some fact or some politician claiming something, they might ask just, how do you know that? What is the evidence for that? How reliable is the evidence for that? Uh, What kind of uncertainty is in that? Um, Has this result been reproduced? Is it something everyone agrees on? could could it change in the future? And if it does, what will we what do we project will happen if it changes? Um, how can I think creatively about solving this problem? There's a whole bunch of ways that can happen. Well, it certainly is a way of thinking that is foreign to a lot of people. Do you think there are steps that people could take to to develop more of a scientific way of thinking? Um, you can read my book, uh, learn science. You can uh, learn mathematics. Um, you can, you know. Try to find sources that are more reliable and ask yourself why you trust the sources that you do. I want to point out there's also a lot about physics in there, too, which is not all about the um, scientific thing, but it is applying these methods. I mean, it's seeing how we move forward in, in the world of physics as well as in the world of ideas, and it, and it is a very exciting. All right, well, the book is called Knocking on Heaven's Door, How Physics and Scientific Thinking Illuminate the Universe and the Modern World. And uh, Professor Randall, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science right. Show. So thank you very much for having me on. And that was Professor Lisa Randall talking about how physics and scientific thinking illuminate the modern world. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Mama, take this badge off of me. I can't use it anymore. It's getting dark, too dark to see. I'm knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Mama put my guns in the ground I can't shoot them anymore That long black cloud is coming down I feel I'm knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, what particle would they be uh, and why? So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they were a subatomic particle, which one would they be, and a little reason why. Uh, Professor Randall, ready to play the game? No. <laughs> I, can't, I can guarantee anything. Uh, person number one, uh, Charlie Sheen. 
So I guess that would be uh, the uh, maybe it would be a, a top cork because it just decays really quickly. Decay is actually a top cork decays into a bottom cork in a weakly interacting particle. That seems to describe something. Uh, number two, uh, what particle would he be? Uh, Tiger Woods. I guess a neutrino because it has long range. It doesn't interact that much, so it goes over long distances. Maybe that's more like the golf ball that he hits. But, so it's not him himself, but I'll, I'll go with neutrino. All right, fair enough. Uh, number three, Stephen Hawking. <laughs> um, Stephen Hawking. Um, I guess... Um, Stephen Hawking, I guess, would be a, um, let's say, uh, um, some sort of strongly interacting particle because he seems to attract lots of people around him. All right. And one of Hawking's longtime colleagues, Kip Thorne. <laughs> what would Kip Thorne be? Um, I'll, just, I'll just give him black holes just because he wrote a book on it. No, no really reason. It's not actually a subatomic particle either, but I'm just going to call him a black hole. But he's a good guy. All right, and finally, number five, uh, what kind of particle would he be? It's the uh, President of the United States, Barack Obama. Oh, that's a good one. Um, I guess he would be a graviton because he uh, tries to interact with um, all, partic all other particles, as does gravity. All right, well, Professor Randall, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing the game and, again, uh, talking about your book, Knocking on Heaven's Door. Thank you so much for your yeah. time. Thank you. I'm so glad you liked the book. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>